Amen. And kids, kindergarten through second grade, if you want to make your way out to your story time. And as you're going, kids, I want you to think about what is your favorite thing to eat at Thanksgiving? So some of you might say, my favorite thing is the bread, the rolls. But Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And I love to actually, I can't pick a favorite thing to eat because I like to eat it all. Love the sweet, all the casseroles, sweet potato, green beans, squash, corn, we'll take them all. Love all the pies, don't need to choose, you know, uh, pecan, apple, sweet potato, pumpkin, we'll take them all. But probably my least favorite part of the entire Thanksgiving menu is the turkey. And so we've been on a quest, because our family for years just didn't even bother with turkey. I mean, we'd have ham and then we'd do brisket. And, uh, but the last couple of years, we've been thinking, all right, we've got to redeem the turkey because the turkey has to be the centerpiece. So we tried multiple ways, and I think I got a good way of, uh, I like my honey maple bourbon rub that I put on the turkey. So I think we've got it pretty good. But it's interesting, like, when did the turkey become the centerpiece of the Thanksgiving meal? So you can go back, the, at least what's recognized as the first Thanksgiving here in America, 1621, the pilgrims from the Mayflower, and the centerpiece of the meat for their three-day harvest celebration uh, was brought by the, the Indians, brought uh, deer, brought venison. And the Indians didn't know, but for the British who were there, the deer was the meat of the kings. You know, in England, you would be, uh, you would be thrown in prison for poaching one of the king's deer. So deer was at the center. Now there is some debate whether that was the first Thanksgiving in America or not. There's some Florida historians who say the very first Thanksgiving was actually September 8th, 1565 in St. Augustine because they had a Thanksgiving Day celebration to inaugurate the new city. So maybe we actually started Thanksgiving. But Turkey didn't come into the center until about the 1850s, but there was about 75 years of kind of hard, uh, hard-pressed propaganda from the powers that be. So George Washington, one of his first uh, legislative acts was to declare Thanksgiving as a national holiday. And Alexander Hamilton loved turkey so much, he said, it is every American's right to have turkey on Thanksgiving. And Benjamin Franklin loved turkey so much, he pushed for the wild turkey to be the national bird of America. He didn't want the bald eagle. He wanted the wild turkey. But it wasn't until 1850s that that kind of became established. But now you could make a case that the first Thanksgiving wasn't 1621 or 1565. You could make a case that the first Thanksgiving was actually first Thanksgiving meal was 3,000 years before 1621 in the land of Egypt at the very first Passover. So what we're doing this week is we're kind of wrapping up our fall series through the first part of Exodus, and we've come to the final plague and the institution of the Passover meal. And then next week, we'll hit the pause button and kind of launch into our Advent series, which is going to be themed around joy. And our key text for that will be the book of Philippians as we look at joy. But today we want to think about that very first Thanksgiving meal. And what was at the center of that meal wasn't a turkey. It was actually a lamb. So the lamb was at the center. 
So we want to think, all right, what, why was the lamb at the center? And we'll look at it at two different angles. One is, all right, what's the significance of the lamb? What's its meaning? Why a lamb? And then we'll look at, all right, well, what's the story behind the lamb? So there's both significance and story. But as we orient ourselves just to the passage, we need to be reminded of how strange this passage is just in the narrative flow of the book. We joked at the beginning of this series that the book of Exodus causes Hollywood screenwriters just a nightmare because there's all there's these sections of just intense, incredible, like high drama, like worthy of big blockbuster Hollywood films. And then there's these moments where it just stops and you get things like a whole chapter of a geneal genealogy right in the middle of the action or right in the middle of the action. And here we finally culminated to the point of the exodus what 480 years of drama and difficulty has been building up and the entire first movement of the book is moving to the climactic moment where finally God's people are going to be set free and before we get there, it's surrounded by detailed instructions about how God wants you to prepare dinner that night. You might go, what? What? This is a little odd. So chapter 12 starts. So all the chapter 12 gives you the whole kind of instructions for how God wants you to prepare and eat the lamb. And then you have the 10th plague, which is the devastation fall. And then you have the exodus. And then you look at the end of chapter 12 and verse 43. It's a resumption where God reiterates how important the detailed instructions for dinner that night are. And then there's this strange consecration of the firstborn. And then it comes back to the feast of dinner and how important it is not to just do it right that night, but you're going to do it just like that every single year for the rest of your existence. So you think, oh, this is, so this meal is more than just pick out your favorite things and have them. There's something about this meal that's going to be the most important thing in the reality of the life of these people. It's going to be the meal that every year they're meant to relive and renew and reenact this most important event. It's so important that God tells them in chapter uh, 12, verse 1, look, he says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So God is going to reorient their entire calendar around this meal. And now everything is going to flow from that. So again, kind of getting in our bearings of the story, God's called Pharaoh to release the Hebrews from their poverty and, poverty and slavery. Nine plagues have been unleashed. And what we've seen in the different plagues is that when you violate God's design, you unleash forces of disintegration and chaos into the world. But then here comes plague number 10. And in many ways, this is the most disastrous. So we're going to just pick out bits and pieces from chapter 12 and chapter 13. But what I want you to key in on and listen for the lamb. So verse 2, starting in verse 3 of chapter 12. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to what each can eat, and they shall make 
your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it, and they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it, raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belts fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you and on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day will be a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations as a statue forever. You shall keep this feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person will be cut off from the land of Israel. And reiterates all the the stipulations. Now skip down to verse 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of doors of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter into your house and strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land of the Lord has given you and that he has promised, and you will keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You will say, this is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our house. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went out and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron they did so. And so here, one of the initial questions is, all right, God is in the 10th plague. As you notice in verse 23, where God says, I'm going to send this, this strange character that he names the destroyer. The destroyer is coming. You say, all right, you know, who is that? What is God telling them when he's giving them the commands? In some ways, he's telling them that on this night, there's someone coming, and he is the destroyer. And what he is, is I am fast-forwarding in time, and on this one night, in this one place, in this very limited way, all of my divine justice and judgment is coming down. So on this night, there's going to be a temporary preliminary but devastating window opened into judgment day. And so these aren't just the natural forces of disintegration and chaos that comes when sin comes. There's an actual destroyer who's coming. 
And this is in one way the most unstoppable force in the universe and it's about to cut through the greatest empire the world had ever known to that date and the greatest military force the world had ever seen up until that date. It's about to cut through them like hot knife through butter. And what the Lord is telling his people is what's going to protect you from this, this force, this person, the destroyer, is a lamb. And there's a couple of things that we have to reorient ourselves because we don't, I think we can miss by being too familiar with the story, just how utterly strange this is. I mean, can you imagine the, like, I, the, the, the most devastating, unstoppable force is coming and then you say, all right, here's, here's the animal that's going to protect you. It's the lamb. Now, I don't know if you, like, if you have like stuffed animals, kids, if you have stuffed animals that you need to help protect you, but one of our boys has this giant bunny that we call Big, Big Bunny, creative naming. And it almost be like, like if there was like this devastating you know, invasion coming to take over Florida, and he says, don't worry, I've got Big Bunny. That wouldn't give us a lot of consolation. And you might be thinking, all right, if we need, all right, there's this force coming. We need an animal to protect the house. I mean, we need like Rottweilers and Doverman Pinchers, or we need to go down to the Nile and get a whole fleet of the saltwater crocodiles. That's what's going to protect us, not the lamb. How does this little cute fluffy, how is he going to protect us? I guess the, the solution to the greatest force in the universe is you're going to kill this lamb, you're going to take his blood and put it over the door of your house, and then you're going to eat it with your family. You say, oh, strange. But in this chapter, each of the central movements of this sacrifice are hitting on some of the most deep central realities of who we are, what we need, and the type of world we're living in. And this is the next stage in solving the key problems that uh, came into the world in Genesis 3 when sin entered into the world. When sin entered into the world, there's three great relationships that became fractured and broken. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with others. And in this verse, the meaning of the lamb is the lamb is going to speak to how God intends to heal each one of those fractures. So the lamb can help teach us how it's going to heal our relationship with God. And that's why it says in uh, verse 27, this is the Lord's sacrifice. See, here's the core fundamental question that every human of all time is, has wrestled with. How do, I, how do I connect with the divine? Like all ancient cultures knew, uh, you know, in some ways we live in a very materialistic world that believes all that is is what can be felt, seen, touched, tasted. And it's a very small world. Because most people who have existed in time believe that we're not just physical realities, but there's also a spiritual reality. Physical and spiritual world. God created the heavens, the spiritual world, and the earth, the physical world. And the question is, how can the physical touch, know, encounter the spiritual? And the answer that every people has ever given is sacrifice. And in some ways, it's, it's how do you deal with your mortality? When sin came in, it brought death, and how do we deal with it? This is why in this section there's so much talk about the firstborn, and some of the questions that are just firstborn generally or specifically the firstborn sons. Because the firstborn, and you can look even in chapter 13, 
That's why it begins the consecration of the firstborn. Then the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whoever is the first to open up the womb, according to the people of Israel, both man and beast, they are mine. I think, hmm, that's strange. What about the firstborn? You see, some of the symbolism of the firstborn is that the firstborn was the herald and the emblem of the next generation, and it represented the, the stability of the strength of the father being passed down and being able to transcend the grave. See, the thing that everyone wrestles with is, is, is this life that I have, is this all that is, and what happens to the work that I do and the things I try and build? Is it just here today, gone tomorrow? And the, the firstborn was symbolic that uh, your life and your legacy can be passed down from generation to generation because all ancient cultures, part of their ambition was not just individual. This is kind of hard for us because we're so individualistic. We're probably the most individualistic culture that's ever existed. But in ancient cultures, they had aspirations, but it wasn't just personal aspirations. It, was, uh, it wasn't for individual promise, uh, prominence or prosperity or success. You hope for communal. It was the success of your family. It was the prosperity of your family. You didn't think in these individualistic terms. So you thought about the good of the whole, the family. And that's why the firstborn was so central. But also, it wasn't just success and honor for the, the whole, it was also shame and failure. When one member of the family failed or acted in a shameful way, the entire family felt responsible. And this, this is hard for us because, you know, I mean, even, you know, you know it at your, your home. Like, you can tell one person in your house to, hey, will you clean up X? And they say, hey, I didn't do that. That's not my mess. It doesn't matter that the mess is in our home or our living room. I didn't do it. And so we feel like if one member of the family acts in a shameful way, hey, that's them. It's not on me. I'm my own person. And you can see some of the tension. One of the reasons I love Jane Austen's literature is because she's wrestling with the tension as we move out of a communal culture into an individualistic. So, for example, if Lydia is going to disgrace and do, uh, uh, bring shame upon herself, why should Jane or Lizzie care? What does that have to do with them? But you have someone like Lady Catherine de Bourgh presenting the, the common wisdom that everybody knows. You know, should the shades of Pemberley be polluted with the, the stains or the sins of this family? What one does, it reflects and represents the whole and so what God is doing, when God claims the, the firstborn of every family, he's sending a message that was unmistakably clear to them because he'll reiterate it here. It's interesting. He reiterates it here at the, the climactic moment of the book. Then he reiterates it again in Exodus 22 when he gives the Ten Commandments. Then again in Numbers 3 and Numbers 8. And what he's telling them over and over, the life of the firstborn is mine. And every single year you're going to have to pay a ransom price for them, a redemption price. And, and uh, what it's telling them is that there's a debt that looms over every single family. And every single family owes the debt of sin, and it's owed to God. And in many ways, the firstborns represent the reality that that needs to be paid. 
So how sacrifice is how we uh, can heal the relationship that needs, was broken between us and God. And this will be paralleled with the story of Abraham, as we'll see in a second. But the second relationship is just relationship with self. Notice the lamb's sacrifice has to then be eaten. It has to be consumed. And God goes out of his way to tell us, this is specifically how I want you to prepare the meal. And this is getting at the next kind of fundamental reality about life is that the key idea of substitution. That even though there's a debt to be paid, there's this idea of substitution and there's a dynamic that's working at the very fabric of the universe that's my life for yours. And you can see this most clearly by the things that you eat. One of the most simple things we do. Sacrifice, if you think about it, is essential for all of life. And look at the meal. You know, when we were in Louisville, I was was a floor manager of a, a restaurant, and uh, we had two, two young ladies who worked at our restaurant who were very outspoken evangelists for the vegetarian way of living in the world. And this might surprise you, but I'm not very sympathetic to that way of being <laughs> in the world. And so we would have all types of fun discussions, and it was always good-hearted, and I was like, that's fine, but remember, you work at a restaurant, so don't let those convictions bleed off on the customers. And the owner of the restaurant was wanting to do this experimental, the name of the restaurant was the Blue Dog Cafe and Bakery, and he was working on this experimental restaurant called the Blue Hog, and he raised his own pigs, and we would take all the food that wasn't eaten, and we'd give it to the pigs to really fatten them up, and... Uh, one week, he was experimenting with this kind of special uh, way he wanted to do the ribs for the restaurant. And I was so excited to when we finally got done with our shift on that Saturday to sit down and we were all going to try them. And um, if you know Cynthia and I, you know that of the two of us, she's a lot more vocal in her expressions of praise and joy. I'm a little more stoic. But certain things can really get it out of me. And these ribs were one of them. <laughs> and the two girls that, that, were, that were condemned to eat lunch with us that day were not really in the mood to hear me sing the lavish praise of the barbecue. And so one of them got pretty kind of animated. And she says something like, I could not live with myself if I knew a living being had to die so I could stuff my face. And I didn't take that personally. Like, show me what you got for lunch. And she, I mean, she had this beautiful culinary masterpiece filled with all types of varieties of lettuce. I mean, we had romaine and spinach and arugula and all types of colored, you know, I mean, we're talking like eggplant and carrots and this whole thing of exotic grains. I said, man, you got so many different quinoa versions over there. I mean, you could put, uh, you, you give new meaning to the term serial killer. Because, I mean, if you want to do like a body count of the living beings that had to die so this lunch could happen, I mean, you, you're the vegetable slayer over here because like all of those things in that bowl were alive at one point. I mean, let's not even get started talking about what the eggs are, you baby murderer. <laughs> and so 
I mean, in one way, the, the, the dynamic of life is that God has woven into the fabric of the universe the reality of sacrifice. My life for yours. And every, every one of you know, if you're a parent, you're a mother, every mother knows. This is the full dynamic. You will not thrive unless I give my life. It's my life for yours. That key idea of substitution is going to be brought out powerfully in the dynamic of this meal because in every single home in the land of Egypt that night, there was either going to be a dead person or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. And every firstborn son who stayed alive through the meal would look at the lamb on the table and think, I am alive because it is not. It was its life for my life. The lamb was a sacrifice. The lamb was a substitute. The lamb paid the debt that the firstborn could not pay so he could then live the life that he did not deserve. Every firstborn in every Hebrew home said, the only reason I'm alive is because it is not. And the meaning of the lamb is that there's the dynamic of substitution is essential to life. And you think, well, why is that? It's because substitution is the dynamic of what caused the problem to begin with. Sin is us substituting ourselves for God putting ourselves in his place where only he belongs. And then salvation is God substituting himself for us, putting himself in the place where only we belong. And the story of the lamb is the centrality of substitution. But then you can see it builds because this shows us that this is how our relationship with others can be healed because the lamb's sacrifice is going to show that, that need is universal. It's something that we all have. It's not specifically restricted to just the Egyptians. One of the interesting things about the plagues is who they strike and when. So plagues one through three come down on everyone. This is universal. Everyone has to endure that. Starting in plague four, God tells Pharaoh that now I'm going to show you that I make a distinction between my people and you. And so the, from four to nine, the plagues only hit the Egyptians. But on plague 10, notice we're back into the realm of the universal. Look what he tells him in verse 22. He says, none of you should leave your house tonight. Because if you come out from under the shelter of the blood, you will be struck down too. This is not a Hebrew versus Egyptian thing. And what he's doing is he's telling the Israelites, he says, look, you are the oppressed. They are the oppressor. You are the worship of worshipers of the one true God. They worship idols. Yet you in and of yourself, you are not capable to meet what's coming. You can't stand on your own two feet and meet judgment. And we live in a world, this is hard for us too, because the dominant narrative that explains our world is there's two different groups. There's the oppressors and the oppressed. And one of the things, this is cutting through all of that and saying, no, no one is able to stand on their own when judgment comes. 
See, what he's telling them in a powerful way that in the final spiritual analysis, even if you're the morally ethical ones or the biblically righteous ones or the doctrinally pure ones, if you try to stand on your own two feet, you will not make it. You cannot go out there on your own. Do not trust in your own race, your own pedigree, your own ethnicity, your own religion, your own beliefs, your own doctrine, your own good behavior is not a strong enough foundation to stand on. Every single person in this country, in Egypt at the time, must shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And one of the things it tells us that a whole mixed multitude came out of Egypt. So it wasn't just the Israelites who were able to shelter under the blood of the Lamb. It was whoever heard the word of the Lord and believed it and did what he said. So this is the great leveler to let us know, all right, we're all in the same boat. Everyone has a debt that must be paid. It is possible to experience substitution, but we are all in this boat. That's the meaning of the lamb, and it parallels the growing development of the story of the lamb. Because God has given us stories to help unpack that, and the first story of the lamb is chapter 1 when Abraham wrestles with this idea. Because remember in Genesis chapter 22, his beloved son kind of not necessarily the firstborn, but the one that embodies and represents all of his hopes and aspirations and the fulfillment and the culmination of all of God's promises to him. In Genesis chapter 2, God calls him to sacrifice his son. And one of the just mysterious things about this story is I don't know how you would think, like, if I felt like I had a dream and God was calling me to sacrifice my son, I would probably wake up and say, what? What did you put in the spaghetti last night? Like, were those mushrooms fresh you snuck in there? But Abraham doesn't do it. I mean, I think if God would say, all right, I want you to sacrifice his wife, he would say, no, 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 wait, that's crazy. But when he asked for the, in essence, the firstborn son, Abraham knows exactly what's happening. He knows that there's a debt that must be paid, and now God is calling it in. And that's why when they go and they go up the mountain and Isaac looks and it's kind of the emotional high point of the narrative. And Isaac says, look, Father, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. I don't see the lamb. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, my son, the Lord will provide the lamb. And what Abraham is wrestling with in that moment, he said, okay, I know on the one hand that God is just and there has to be a payment for the sin. But on the other hand, I know that he's also gracious and merciful and, and he's promised to, to, to bless me. And I don't know how these two things can both be true at the same time. He is both just and punishment must be paid, but he's also good and forgiving. I don't know how he can be both just and the justifier, but I'm going to trust some way that he can work this out. I'm going to trust that he's just and gracious at the same time, even though I don't see how. And so what Abraham is learning is, all right, there's a debt that has to be paid. And then we get to chapter 2, Moses, what Moses is telling us is, yes, there is a debt that has to be paid, but it can be paid by a substitute. A lamb can, be, can pay it for you. And you read through the whole narrative, there's this interesting tension, I think, because even though it's almost like God's saying, all right, even though I'm going to deliver you tonight, this is not the ultimate deliverance you need because you're going to have to reenact this in the exact same way every single year because there's still this debt that's hanging over and it hasn't really been dealt with by the lamb. And we all know that lamb is 
sentimental and it's symbolic, but it can't really cover the debt. And as important as this one is tonight, as important as this lamb is, you're going to need something more. You're going to need another lamb. As important as this deliverance is that you're about to be delivered from Egypt, it's not going to go deep enough. Because one of the things they're actually going to learn through the whole rest of the story is that in some ways getting them out of Egypt was the easy part. Getting Egypt out of them was the hard part. And so this deliverance, just political deliverance, is not going to run deep enough. So there's something more that's needed. So chapter one is there's a debt that we all owe. Chapter two, it's possible to pay that debt by a lamb. And then we fast forward to chapter three. Chapter three, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he celebrated the Passover meal, the meal of thanksgiving with his disciples, and he brings them together. And when they would have celebrated that Passover meal, and you see this really clearly, Matthew does a great job of drawing out these parallels, there would have been two gigantic shocks for everyone that is in the room. So when they start the meal, first Jesus, Jesus stands up and he begins to kind of take the role of the presider, the father over the feast. And you get the instructions for how the father is supposed to, uh, to preside over the meal in chapter 12 and chapter 13 of Exodus. And uh, there's two little moments that I'm not sure if it was just the disciples. I think more people were there to be interesting because children were supposed to be there and they had an integral part of asking questions to, to propel the discussion. And it would be really interesting because if kids were there, depending on the personality of the kid, a couple of times they would have either started laughing underneath their breath because, uh-uh, like he really screwed it up. Or they would have stopped him and said, uh-uh, no, that, that's not quite right. You didn't say it quite right. So the first time is that the Passover meal, there would have been a presider, and uh, he would have gotten up and explained each piece. And one of the first things that would have caused them to laugh or correct is he would stand up and say, when Jesus stood up and said, he said, this is the bread. Now what he's supposed to say is that this is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so we could be set free. That's not what he says. He stands up and takes the bread and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. Of course, the kids would have started smirking. He said it wrong. (laughs) He messed up the lines. Or did he? Did he mess up the lines? And what he's saying is, this is the bread of my affliction. I'm going to suffer. So that you can experience ultimate freedom. Freedom not just from your physical bondage, not just from your political bondage, not just from your economic bondage, but the ultimate thing that has bound us all sin and death. This is my body. And now it's my suffering that's going to bring your healing and liberation. That would have been the first thing that would have shocked them. The second thing that would have shocked them is they would have looked around at the table and they would have looked down and say, wait wait a second, like who's in charge of this thing? Because there's a central piece to the meal that's not here. It's kind of like if you go to a family member's for Thanksgiving and they leave out the turkey, or in my opinion, if they leave out the sweet potato casserole. The central piece of the meal is not here. And they would have looked at the table and said, oh, wait a second. You, I mean, you forgot one pretty important part. There's no lamb on the table. 
And I think he was looking around and telling them, and this is what John the Baptist got and told us, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. He was at the table. The lamb was deliberately removed from the Passover meal because what Jesus is saying is tonight I am the lamb. The symbolism and the significance of what it was pointing to is pointing to me and my death is going to be the central event in which all of history and all of your relationships uh, with God have been moving. And tonight I'm giving you the ultimate salvation that even Moses could only faintly glimpse at and couldn't understand it's all in his full force. Behold, the lamb is not on the table because he's at the table. And it's only through him that that fundamental relationship with you and God can be healed. It's only through the blood of the lamb that you, the fundamental brokenness in your own heart and soul, can be healed. And it's only through the lamb that the fundamental brokenness between you and others can be healed. And so this wonderful truth is represented by the Passover, that is represented by the Passover, comes to full flower with Jesus and the cross. You know, in this once and for all Passover foreshadowing, Jesus is offering for all time a sacrifice for sins. And at Calvary, this sacrifice of his body uh, is given once and for all, and that everything that God required to be done and that we so desperately need done on our behalf was accomplished, and accomplished so finally, so fully, and so effectively that the sins for all of those with whom he's died is remembered no more and no further sacrifice is ever needed. And so now, unlike the original Passover, this Passover meal, the work of salvation, needs no repetition. It requires no re-representation. It can't be amplified. All it can be is remembered, celebrated, and received. And so that's one of the reasons we come in many ways, we have a mini Thanksgiving meal every single Sunday when we come to the Lord's table. And in many traditions, it's customary to go back to 1 Corinthians 11 as that central passage. But what we might want to go all the way back to the first Thanksgiving meal and reminder of that first supper. Because it enables us as the contemporary uh, participants to, to reconstitute ourselves every single week over and over again. Just like the people in the upper room sat with Jesus at his feet. And so do we. And we're reminded that just as they came out of Egyptian slavery, uh, every year they re reconstituted themselves as a Passover people. We're reminded as every week we re regather and constitute ourselves as the ones who are redeemed the ones who are sheltering under the blood of the Lamb and finding their life in his broken body, given as a sacrifice for us and for our salvation. So here at Trinity each week, we come uh, to the Lord's table. We'll have four stations. The one in the back corner is gluten-free. And so once we're in place, you come and you remember.